All right, Acts chapter 10. We're going to read verses 23 to the end of the chapter. The message title is Bursting the Bubble. We've been talking through this entire narrative. Last week we talked about uh, the vision of uh, Peter and how God was breaking down some barriers and walls in his heart, emotionally and also spiritually. And today we want to actually talk about the encounter that Peter has with Cornelius and all those that were assembled in his house that particular day when they met. So Acts 10, verse 23. I'll pick up on the second half of 23. And on the next day he, that being Peter, arose and went away with them. And that was that delegation of three individuals, the messengers of Cornelius that went to fetch him. Okay, so on the next day, Peter arose and he went with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them. And he had called together his relatives and close friends. And when it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him. And he fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. And so I ask, for what reason you have sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon, the tanner by the sea. So he sent sent, sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then... We are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which, which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. And God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely 
No one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Amen. This passage that we read right now is one of the most significant in the entire narrative of the book of Acts. I don't want you to miss the importance historically of what just occurred. The salvation of Cornelius, his family, all of his close friends that were gathered that day at the preaching of Peter with these assembled uh, witnesses, what happened here in this passage is phenomenal, significant, beyond measure in terms of the, the overarching plan of God. As we've mentioned in weeks past, God has this master plan, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We've officially now are crossing Judea into Samaria in terms of a foreigner, in terms of a non-Jewish first century Christian. Now this gospel is going to just spread from this place as Peter latches on to this truth. That all men are welcome before God. Not just his countrymen. Not just those who were like him of the Jews in that particular region. But as God welcomes all who fear him, that no one should be considered unholy, off limits, beyond the reach of God's grace. What happened in the mind and heart of Peter here and eventually in our next chapter in the early church leaders is pivotal, is, is remarkable. And so this message is titled, Bursting the Bubble. Now, if you think about that phrase, what do we use that phrase for? Like the bubble that you live in, right? And I was thinking about a couple of things, right? The bubble is, firstly, when a person isolates him or herself, right? Now, this can be because of uh, shyness, right? You isolate yourself from the mainstream of society and you live in your own little bubble. So it can be because of you're, you're shy, you're introverted, maybe. Or it can be because of pride. You think you're superior, and so in this bubble that you live in, all others are outside of that kind of place where you're at in your mind, and even in the environment that you live in. And so it's to isolate yourself is one part of living in a bubble. The second part, I think, is to be insulated. And this is almost a byproduct of being in the bubble, right? And so you might be in a bubble and not know you're in a bubble, but by virtue of being in it, you're insulated from the people that are outside of it, right? So this isn't necessarily because of shyness or superiority, but just by virtue of the fact of being in a bubble, okay? And so there's a, an insulation that you're, you're not living life the same way as people outside of the bubble. You don't have the same experiences. You're not running into those folks on a regular day-to-day occurrence, okay? And so the insulation factor. Okay, And as I was thinking about that, you know, I think we normally think of bubbles in socioeconomic terms, don't we? Right. That there's like, you know, the the upper one percent or the 10 percent of the one percent. Right. And as we think of those who have privilege, resources, wealth, as we think about that, they're in this bubble. And and what we find and, and as I was doing a little bit of study for this bubble aspect of the message that zip codes tend to be little bubbles, right? And there was actually a PBS study by uh, a gentleman by the name of Charles Murray. And it was a recent study. 
And he uh, wrote this article about the hundred bubbliest zip codes in the nation. All right? It kind of caught my attention. And, and so these, are the, uh, these aren't meant to be read. I just put them real small for you, okay? And so from first, I mean, we've got our Silicon Valley over here, right? Uh, Fremont, Silicon Valley, okay? Actually, that is the most bubbliest according to this study. And the hundred is in Philadelphia, you know, Rittenhouse Square. And... Of particular, what I'll highlight for you is 23. That's Irvine. Okay? Irvine is considered a very bubbly zip code in this particular nation. Now, Newport Beach is up there as well, 21. The most well-represented regions of the country were New York City and the Silicon Valley. Los Angeles, the greater LA area, was a close third. Okay? And so, uh, as we think about this, you know, if you live in Irvine or in Orange County or in this particular area, you know, you might understand the bubble that you live in. You might understand the resources, the access to education, the particular parks down the street from you, whatever you have access to, clubs, sports, all of these things that are a given at times, but when you search out and you go to other parts of the country, it's not always the case. So it's easy to, to think that what we experience in our particular region is the experience of everybody, but it's not. Okay? And so, but my message here is not talking about socioeconomic bubbles. I want to talk about spiritual bubbles from our passage. I want to talk about the bubble of the early church and why it was so important for God to bust through that. Because if you think about it, those that are in the bubble... I think, become easily blinded to it. That we forget that we're in it. That we overlook the privilege that we have, the positions that we're in, the resources that we have access to. And this isn't just in a socioeconomic standpoint. But when we think about anything that we have in our possession or we have access to, if we think about the early church, they had an access to Christ. They had a certain spiritual place and resources that were at their disposal. Christ walked with first century Jews, being a first century Jew himself. And the first disciples, the early gatherings, the the first multitudes that gathered, they were Jews. And those that followed Christ, they were first century Jews. And when Peter and this accompanied fellowship of, of, of of folks that, that, that went from Joppa to Caesarea into the house of a foreigner. They were completely shocked. If you think about the message that Peter was preaching, you know, you yourselves know, and he talked about Jesus and how he was risen from the dead and how he commissioned them to preach the gospel. They were preaching the gospel to other Judeans. They were preaching the gospel to the other Jews of Galilee. And as they were were preaching, there was still a limited kind of focus to their outreach. They were reaching people like themselves. Because up until this point, now Peter is completely shocked. The early, this gathering that that witnessed this, the the accompanied uh, people that followed Peter, they were in complete amazement that God would then save these foreigners. And so it just shows you the scope of their ministry up until now. They had just been reaching folks that looked like them, that were like them, that they were comfortable relationally around. And this was a bubble that they were in. And I think to a sense they were completely blinded to that. I don't think there was any malice, any bad intent to that. 
But I think in a certain sense, it's just natural to reach out to the people that we're comfortable with, that reside in the same type of environments that we're in, that have the same type of upbringing and we're familiar with. And what we read in our passage today of Peter going into the house of Cornelius. It's a phenomenal passage. I mean, I think it's phenomenal that, first of all, that Cornelius being a man of influence, a man of power, being a centurion, you know, having other people underneath him. You can imagine uh, that first century type house being like a a small compound with a a gate and a complete wall around it, maybe, right? If you look into many parts of the world, they still have houses like that where you have to enter a gate first and you come into an outer courtyard before you actually come into the house itself. Right? And so this was a common way to build houses back then. What's intriguing is that Cornelius actually goes out to meet Peter. Right? He, he greets him at the gate, basically. Because after they meet, it says that they walked into the house together, and then Peter saw all of the, the assembled folks that were there. And so Cornelius shows a tremendous amount of humility here. He meets Peter at the gate. He doesn't send a servant out to fetch him. And he meets him there, and he falls on his face, and he begins to worship him. And Peter, in his own way, shows a great sense of humility. He says, no, stand up. I'm a man like you. There's no need for this. And then, almost hand in hand, these two gentlemen walk into the house, and there is a lot of people gathered. It throws Peter off for a second. And the first thing that he says is, you know how unlawful it is for me to come into here as a Jewish man. And he sets the stage relationally. Right, But then he also says, God has prepped me for this because he has shown me that I should consider no one off limits or unholy or unclean, and that's why I have come. And then he doesn't even know why he was being fetched. Right? And he says, for what reason have you called me here? Why am I here? And then Cornelius begins to share, four days ago, to this very hour, I was just praying and I saw a vision. And I was told that you had a message for me. And so that's why I sent for you. And that moment, it finally clicked in the mind of Peter. He realized as he was listening to Cornelius how God had prepped him that this was a moment to preach the gospel. And that's the first thing that he does. He opens his mouth and he says, now you know. And he begins to recount the ministry of Jesus and what he had accomplished for them and how faith through Christ and believing in His name is the foundation of salvation. And that all are welcomed before God. And he opens his mouth. And as he is preaching this message, the Holy Spirit falls down in a visible way. Because those that were there witnessing this saw something. Right? They were, they were speaking in tongues. And it reminds you of Acts 2, of that moment of Pentecost in the early church as well. And how they were glorifying God, speaking of the things and the wonders of God in their own language. And so something visible and verbal was happening in that room that day with Cornelius, his family and his friends. And their jaws dropped to the ground. Why? Because they were saying to themselves can't believe God gave them the same spirit he gave to us. Do you see how entitlement, do you see how the thing that, that was there, that in a sense there was a, a, still creeping in, creeping in there, a sense of entitlement and elitism. Because they're confused first, they're amazed, wait a minute, God gave those guys the very same good thing that He gave to us. And it it brought a sense of confusion and amazement to the onlookers. 
And so God is breaking this down. He's breaking these barriers down in Peter and Cornelius in in this assembled gathering through the giving of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying and he's communicating, I'm serious about this. This is my plan. This is what I want to do. I want this message of salvation to go to the furthest parts of the world. And I want you to know that something needs to change in your mind. That you need to be able to wrap your mind around the salvation of a foreigner, of a Samaritan. And when you can finally do this, you've crossed this tipping point. You've unleashed and unraveled something that is absolutely key. And suddenly the gospel can go from there to the rest of the world. There was a blind spot in the early church and it was precisely the gap between Judea and Samaria. It was the point of greatest relational difficulty. It was the place in which there was a history of bad blood. It was the place in which you were okay to speak badly and down upon, a, upon another person. And there was nothing wrong with this from their previous mindset. And this had to be broken. There needed to be the smashing of this wall, the bursting of this Jewish bubble. And he did it, starting with the vision of Cornelius and Peter. And finally, through the giving of the Holy Spirit, saying to the church emphatically, receive them. This is the church. This is my idea of what I want my body to look like. And it leads me to the first main point. That the gospel is a unifying force, not a dividing one. And it seems like this is a no-brainer, right? Of course the gospel is a unifying one, right? But I think too often, even in Christian circles, we can try to use doctrinal differences, worship-style preferences, to be a distinguishing factor of what makes us different and unique from you as a believer. And I think it's all too easy to do that to try to distinguish ourselves at what makes us different rather than focusing on what unifies us. And the gospel itself at its core is something that unifies, at its very core, right? And so when you think about church, the gospel, the work of Christ, kingdom work, at the very base of that must be a power that brings people together. Right? Not one that tries to mince and divide, separate and distinguish, but one that tries to find commonality in Christ. One that tries to bring people together amidst differences, whether they be culturally, generationally, economically, environmentally. Whatever the differences might be, the gospel itself is a power that brings people together. That there needs to be the ability of a Christian who has influence and wealth and money to go into a place that is completely devoid of all of those things and there is still a commonality there when it is founded on the gospel. That there is no superiority here. There is not that a have and a have not. That when we think about gospel work, we must first think about what unites us, what brings us together, because that is the power of the gospel. I think denominations or churches can be too focused on differences. And we forget that the gospel inherently is about bringing people together in Christ. 
Even one of the most central verses of the Gospels can be taken in the wrong way. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, Jesus says, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, he says. That seems exclusive, right? Right, oh, those Christians, they're trying to be an exclusive group that Christ is the only way. And it can be viewed as a distinctive, as a separatist type thing. But it's completely not that. Instead of thinking about that verse as one that separates, we need to think about that all who desire to enter through Christ are welcome to the Father. That all, regardless of stripe, regardless of color, regardless of upbringing, regardless of resources, regardless of background, regardless of sin, that all who decide and desire to be in Christ can come to the Father. It is actually one of the greatest unifying things. John 14, 6. That when we submit to Christ, does not matter the differences between me and the next person. That God welcomes me in. That the gospel unites all people in Christ. And again, you know, I think it's human tendency to differentiate. But it's God's desire to unite. When Jesus was approaching the end of His ministry, as He's making the march towards that Last Supper, Gethsemane, and ultimately towards Calvary and the cross, He prays this prayer in John 17. And it's filled with so much great theology, so many wonderful, powerful truths. But there is a a focal point and an aspect of that prayer where he's coming to the Father and he says, may they be one as we are one. And and you have to see the, the cry there. The earnest desire. Because as he's thinking about his relationship with the Father, I mean, all throughout the Gospel of John, that's there, right? The Father and I are one, you know? And it talked all about that. And he knew the intimacy that he had with the Father. He knew the the, the depth of that relationship. And as he thought about him and the Father, he was saying, as he looks upon the church, as he looks upon the early believers, the early leaders, he's saying, may they be one as we are one. And it's this cry for unity. And it's really a cry of the gospel that people would find unity in Him. That there would be a togetherness. And so the gospel is a unifying force, not a dividing one. Secondly, the gospel's greatest point of influence is one person to another. The greatest point. If you want to think where the gospel is powerful, you can think of these great evangelistic movements, these great things that have happened in history. But when you, when you think about what is the greatest point, the greatest moment of influence that the gospel has, it is from one life to another. One person to another. Right? And this is why personal change is the most important. That for a moment we need to forget about what's out there and we need to focus on what's in here, what's inside, what God's doing in us. Because the greatest moment of influence that the gospel can have is my life to another life. Right? Yes, there are great people who speak the word of God to thousands, if not millions of people worldwide. Right? But the greatest point and influence of the gospel that I have is my life to another life. One conversation, one relationship, one encounter. Right? And for Peter and Cornelius, 
It didn't matter what others believed. It didn't matter what others were doing. Because for Cornelius, this is a very strange request, isn't that? I mean, out of the blue, out of nowhere, he's sending this small delegation to fetch this guy that he's never met before. And for Peter, no one in the early church was doing this. He was an anomaly here in terms of his ministry. Right? And so when these folks went to fetch Peter, that none of his contemporaries, none of his counterparts were doing this type of ministry. None. Zero. And so for Peter to follow these folks and to go into the house of Cornelius, this is not an easy thing. Because no one else is doing this. It's easy to do something when everyone else is doing it. But when no one is doing it, when you're the trailblazer, when you're the first one, and you're looking over your shoulder thinking, is this the right thing? Right? Was I, was I misled in that vision? Was it just this wrong idea that I had? Is this something that God is doing? That He must have thought about this, rehearsed this in His mind the entire way. Because as soon as He gets there, He's thinking, why am I here? Why am I here? I know that God has taught me through that vision not to, to consider anybody unholy, but I can imagine the second guessing all the way, even from his fellow comrades that went with him, because they were in amazement right to the very end. I can't believe we're doing this. I can't believe this is happening. Right. But for Peter and Cornelius, at that moment, it did not matter what was happening in other spaces or places. What mattered most was this one encounter between Peter and him. One man to another. This was the point. So I ask you a question. How do you combat the social divides that seem so prevalent? Right? It's not just along racial lines, it's along socioeconomic lines, it's along generational lines, it's along so many lines. Whether you want to think about society or the church or family, right? you might be a part of a family where there's a divide, there's two camps, three camps. You might be a part of a workforce where managers pull people in different directions, where different bosses do different things, where strong personalities. And everywhere we go, there seems to be social divides. Everywhere we go, there are camps that are pulling away from each other. Right? And so how do you combat that? How do you combat the divides that, that we experience in life? Because I think this passage can speak to that. Because the camp of Peter and the camp of Cornelius, there was a divide there. And when we think about the social problems and divides, the way we combat that really is just one encounter at a time. If you have a divide with a family member, co-worker, somebody, how do you, how do you begin to repair that? One encounter at a time. You have a family that's divisive. How do you bring healing there? One Thanksgiving dinner at a time. There is a church and there's strife. How do you bring healing there? One discussion at a time. That one encounter, that there is power there. And from this encounter between Cornelius and Peter, we see the entire trajectory of the early church shifting. Would Peter be faithful to that moment? To that God-ordained 
encounter? Would he throw prejudice and years of training out the window? And would he embrace a foreigner? Would he believe the lie that this one relationship doesn't make a difference? You know, it's insignificant because I think it's all too easy to believe that. That can I make a difference? Can I shift something that is so much larger than me? And when we begin to believe that lie, we forget about being a small instigator of change and of something different. Because his actions, his faithfulness to this moment, it made a difference. It changed the church. One encounter from one vision. It changed the church. You know, I love this quote by Mother Teresa. If you can't feed a hundred people, then feed just one. Because I think we can get caught up, you know, feeding one mouth. Does that really make a difference? But the change of one life becomes the change of a family, which becomes the change of a community, a workplace, which eventually can become the change of a generation. This is why relationships are so key. You know, on the back of your bulletin, you know, that two-part strategy of those growing circles, concentric circles, and those three strata of relationship, salvation, and discipleship. There's a reason why relationship is the top strata. There's a reason why before we try to preach the gospel to an individual or try to disciple them in the faith, why it's important to have a healthy relationship. God spent a great deal of time breaking down relational barriers before any gospel was preached here. Right? He did it first in Cornelius, and then he did it in Peter. And he's active. He's breaking these things down. He's saying, no, don't think that way. You need to think differently about this. And after breaking those barriers down relationally, then he brings them together. Then the gospel is preached, because then it can be received. When we think about preaching the gospel to our family members, our, our, our friends, or the people that are around us, when we think about wanting them to dive deeper in love with Jesus, maturing in their faith, what is absolutely paramount is making sure we start from a healthy relationship. Not just being on speaking terms, but that when we speak, we can truly receive and be received. Relationships. It starts there. This is the healthy platform for conversation that can lead to God. And so as I begin to close this message, guys, you come back up. Let me say this, that God wants to use you to bring healing, restoration, and salvation to your surroundings. That He wants to use us for that. If this is the case, let's say that bubble and those blind eyes are ours. I think we need to take a moment. Maybe God will do something so powerful as to intervene through a vision, as He did for Peter or Cornelius, but maybe not. But He can intervene in different ways by speaking to us in the calmness of our heart, by allowing us to see something 
and grabbing our attention through that. By conversing with us through His Spirit, He can teach us, pinpoint certain things. And that's really where I start to apply this message. I think we need to identify first. We need to identify the biases, the prejudices. We need to identify the things that tend to isolate us in a bubble, that, 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 that separate us. We need to identify those things. And after we identify them, we, we, we know that they're there, and we acknowledge that they're there, I think we need to ask God, say, God, would you open my heart to this? Would you change me? Would you, would you help me to think differently? And he did that for Peter. We're talking about something that was radically different from how he was taught. And we need to ask God for that. Lord, would you open my heart to this change? To thinking differently about this person or thing. And then after we identify and ask, you need to embrace one encounter at a time. Let's forget about, you know, just what it will be 10 years from now and let's focus on that one encounter with that one person. And as we think about that relationship and hand that over to the Lord, slowly this one encounter can become a catalyst for change that is more wide-sweeping, that is larger than life, much bigger than we could have ever imagined. And so bursting the bubble, I think, starts from identification and asking God, and then ultimately leads to us stepping out and embracing the moment, the person, and the encounter. Amen.